1: Hey there listeners, this is Pat the Talking Bearskin Rogue from Flame On, right here on the Nerdy Show Network. If you're looking for some sweet nerdy queer in your ear, then head over to nerdyshow.com slash flameon and check us out. We cover everything from TV to movies, comics to drag queens, and so much more. For a gay and geeky
0: slice of pop culture life, get ready to Flame On. The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. To learn how you can support this and other fine geek programming, visit nerdyshow.com.
2: Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom. From comics and video games to science and technology, if it's geeky, we've got it covered. Hi, I'm Cap, and this episode is not your average Nerdy Show episode. No, you won't find us talking about, you know, any nerdy thing under the sun. If you checked out last episode, you'd know that myself, Doug, and Tony were recently at North Carolina Comic-Con Bull City in Durham, North Carolina. We recounted all the hijinks that we got up to and also other nerdy topics on the way back home from North Carolina to Florida, driving through the middle of the night in our prior episode of Nerdy Show. But now I'm pleased to bring you a little taste of some of the festivities that took place there in the form of a panel about horror. Now, normally I run panels. I run an awful lot of panels, and this North Carolina Comic Con was no different. However, I was delighted to, on a couple occasions, not be a moderator, but a panelist And this was one such occasion. I was thrilled to sit down alongside Chris Ryall, formerly of IDW Comics, who edited the amazing Lock and Key, among many other spooky books over there, and many other not-spooky books as well, and awesome comics author Jeremy Whitley, who's mostly known for all-ages books such as Marvel's recent Wasp comics and his own comic, Princeless, but it turns out that's far from all. We were moderated by the incredible Matt Connor, and it made for a fun conversation that honestly could have kept going. But, what of it we had, we're happy to present to you now with further introductions from myself and the rest of the gang, and a great many winding, almost labyrinthine horror topics that lead us across all genres, and ultimately always come back to the things that make us feel the deepest chill in our bones. So enough from me, I'll kick things over to Matt.
0: Welcome to NC Comic Con, Uh, very first day. Thank y'all for being here in the afternoon for our second panel of the entire con, so thank you for being here.
2: Yeah, and each of you will be strategically eliminated one by one as this particular panel draws on. If I'm gonna (laughs) pick the final
0: one, I'm putting you.
2: Okay. (laughs) So my name is Matt Connor,
0: and uh, by day I'm a psychiatrist, and with my extra time, I am the panel director for NC Comic Con, and I'm, not sure which of my set I'm using today, but we will figure that part out. Uh, I have a great panel of horror enthusiasts and creators, uh, and first up is Cap. Cap, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your role in creative horror stuff is?
2: Sure thing, yeah. Um, I produce a number of podcasts in addition to working on some comic books here and there. Um, but the podcasts are really where most of the horror comes in, because the audio medium can be so very tremendously visceral when it comes to terrifying things. So I executive produce the Stephen King podcast, uh, The Losers Club, and also the Michael Myers podcast, Halloweenies, which is transforming into another kind of podcast in the near future. I, I also nice uh, star on uh, and, and produce a audio drama called The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, which is a Lovecraftian black comedy uh, in the style of a 1930s radio play.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And next up, I have Chris Ronald, who is an editor, and you've edited some pretty scary stuff. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so I'm currently at Skybound, but I was at IDW for a long time where I edited books like Lock and Key. I brought that in with Joe Hill, but I've also written a bunch of horror comics like Zombies vs. Robots, which is kind of more comedic than horrific, but I've adapted things like Clive Barker's The Great and Secret Show and a couple Stephen King projects some George Romero projects, Richard Matheson projects. Zombies, robots, and horror is, is really my, my wheelhouse, so whenever I can work on anything that's got a horror bent to it, I sort of jump at the chance.
0: And at the end we have Jeremy Whitley, who is a prolific writer, uh, but I asked him specifically on here because of that top book on your stack. Why don't you tell us about that?
3: So this is Vampirella, which uh, I wrote for Dynamite this, I guess, previous year. It is kind of a departure from a lot of what I'm known for, which is uh, mostly all-ages stuff in uh, my creator own series, Princeless. Um, while there are some fun horror elements in some of the stuff in there, it's very uh, very different from what I did in Vampirella, which is sort of uh, post-apocalyptic uh, action horror stuff, which uh, is a lot of fun for me, and uh, I'm trying to do, I think, more of that stuff, because it's uh, it's fun to, to spread my wings and get to actually stab people occasionally because we never get to stab anybody in printless
1: fiction. You mean in print, right? Not not necessarily uh, people next this, to you on
0: panels. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> That's what y'all are doing in horror now. What do you remember about growing up in horror, for instance? I know that I watched Halloween at a time that maybe CPS shouldn't have known about. Uh, when, what do you remember about like early exposure to like horror movies, ghost stories, uh, scary comic books? What freaked you out when you were little? I grew up in the age of the slasher films, and so
1: after my parents went to bed, I would stay up and watch, you know, Friday the Thirteenth and Halloween and every kind of slasher film you could get, and I I loved it because it freaked me out in a way that feels quaint now. You know, you used to worry about the monster in the mask and now there's much bigger, more real world concerns that where I'm like, well, nobody's going to like lay in wait outside your tent now. But when I was a kid, when I was 10 or 11, like that stuff terrified and just enthralled me. And that led me naturally to Stephen King books. And so I was reading Stephen King and watching these movies at an age that, you know, my parents probably wouldn't approve of had they paid any attention, but luckily they didn't. And so that stuff, sort of loomed large for me then and it's like everything you like when you're that age it sort of still looms large for me now
3: I think I came into horror kind of sideways through sci-fi my dad was always a big comics and science fiction guy and uh, I think the first horror movie I saw at again an age that I probably shouldn't have seen it was Aliens which uh, I think really stuck with me Uh, ended up getting me into the comic book knockoff of Aliens which was 80's um, (laughs) X-Men and The Brood which uh I deeply love. I love the weird existential stuff you can do with, you know, sci-fi horror. And I've since sort of grown into liking, uh, you know, some of the more slashery stuff. But the stuff that sticks with me is always the, the weird psychological stuff. Things like uh, the
2: Baba Duke that I can't get out of my head after I finish watching it. That particular run of X-Men is, is pretty wild. I distinctly remember that the one that has a cover of "Storm," like an anamorph-style sequence transforming into the brood. Paul Smith's first issue of. Yes. We all remember it very fondly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I was a very fearful child and and even like a documentary on Amelia Earhart would have me paranoid about the ghost of Amelia Earhart where like do? right where where and also alien abductions as well I had a, a large window in my room on a second floor and it was just waiting to be filled with white light and eventually I got over that but I did consciously avoid horror for a long time but every now and then I'd catch something and it would disturb me and yet also rock my world and so I'd attach myself to it. One morning I woke up extremely early and I remember catching on network television a documentary series about every nightmare in Elm Street film and they were showing quite a bit. It was oh, wow. it was like maybe four or five in the morning. And it was very disturbing. I mean like I was enthralled because there's like like this woman transforming into a cockroach, also brood like and like and being crushed it was awful. But also wow like what a surreal visual experience Uh, and then one day I saw the the gate on television during the middle of the day and I was at just the right age for that film to actually be like of substance like to be the same age as those kids and worried about like people being sealed up in the walls Mm -hmm. oh man. Yeah, so it's pretty. It's pretty special. Once horror gets its hooks in you.
1: Would you so would, have you gone back and watched? Like, does it still resonate the way it did?
2: Yeah, I think that it has. This, it's the gate still has this funky, really special vibe to it. It's one of those rare horror films that's about children and the things that children fear and being alone in suburbia, mm-hmm. and that still really does hold. It's not scary, but it it has sort of a fable like quality to it.
1: So I remember Salem's Lot when I was a kid. It was the made for TV movie. And it was very clunky, you know, it was like, I think it was made in the late 70s. And so, but there was the scene with the little kid where he's floating amidst all this fog and he's scratching at his friend's window trying to get let in. And the kid lets him in and he floats in and it just, it scared the shit out of me, you know, (laughs) as a a kid. And like, even now I recognize that it's a very hokey sort of schlocky movie
2: overall, but that scene still gets me, you know, it still works on that same level. Simplicity can often really just hit you in a strange way. Like, for example, the earliest and I feel like most powerful scare of the entirety of Halloween, which I saw at a relatively young age as well, is, is simply, like, the shots during the day of Michael stalking Laurie. Yeah. And I don't know that they're as scary now as they were then, mm-hmm. but my God, then. They kind of are. Well, yeah, yeah.
1: actually...
0: Yeah. Yeah, we all rewatched it in anticipation of the remake, and the stalking scenes are scarier than the stabbing scenes. The stabbing scenes look a little fake now, but the stalking scenes feel like they could happen, and they feel scarier. It's why Stephen King books resonated then and now,
1: because it was like taking this horror that you always saw as like either this gothic thing or sort of that was out there to... like. Now it's in your neighborhood, it's in your house. There was this movie, When a Stranger Calls, which again, not a great movie. And the second half is totally forgettable, but the first half is all about this babysitter getting stalked by somebody who just keeps calling her and calling her and sort of menacing her over the phone. And then, you know, back in the day before cell phones and when you you didn't know who was calling you, there was no caller ID. She calls the police, finally the police track the call and they go, it's coming from inside your house. And just like the terror I felt when I saw that was like, wait, it can be inside your own house now? Yeah. And I think that still resonates in a way that... I didn't expect the movie to have that kind of sort of resonance and impact on me.
0: Yeah, I watched that one again a couple years ago just for a laugh. Uh, and one, it was Carol Kane who was being stalked through, like, from Scrooged and Princess Bride. And she was really just this beautiful like, sex pot of, a, of an actress, which I hadn't seen her do before. And it felt like that scream opening with the call the call. And the that stalker. one too, yeah. But it lasted like... Forty-five minutes, yeah. and you're just like, I am so tense, and I'm so tired, but I need to know how this ends. Yeah, and, and it ends right this, like, worse in, than you in, thought. Yeah, yeah. The, that first forty-five minutes or so of that urban legend of the babysitter soccer. Yeah, yeah, I totally same vibe. You know, I,
3: I recently uh, watched the the new version of It, and um, there's a lot of things that that movie does in incredible ways that they don't really have to there's a lot of things that are just filmed in ways that feel unnerving and like they're not necessarily things that make you jump or make you uh, freak out but they're they're just between their their use of shadow their use of angles the the sort of disconnected way they're filming some of the things and, and it just sets a mood in a way that just sets you a little bit off so that when they finally do get around to doing uh, something legitimately scary you're like oh no oh. I wasn't ready for it. You know, it doesn't let you prepare and get comfortable and things. And uh, that was sort of an interesting thing to me because, like, I've seen it. Like, I've seen the original. Like, I know what's going to happen. But like, they managed to film it in a way that like made me never really feel like this was a comfortable story. That I knew it. Just kind of felt like, oh, this is all going to be terrible. I. <laughs> Need to leave. <laughs> well,
1: and it it makes you aware because it's these kids seeing all this horrific stuff happening, and the parents like either don't pay attention, don't believe them. So then you're just like have that childhood fear of being on your own and not being believed, but also being stalked by this thing, and you're on your own. You, there's nobody there to help you because your parents are either uninvolved or detached or just don't believe what you're saying. And that like that's a fear that you sort of transcends horror movies. Well, yeah, and that
3: lock and key, I think, is a great example of that as well because that yeah. is. Uh, that is a story where, you know, the, the dad is dead and the mom is, at the very least, undefendable, um, you know, at, at, at her worst, sort of self-destructive, and just, like, the fact that there there is nobody to help them, that they're facing this huge menace, and every time that an adult tries to get involved, either they're just like, oh, no, or, you know, they get
2: almost immediately killed. Because the magic, good or bad, doesn't, like, the adults can't see it. Yeah, Yeah. and it's such a transformative menace. Like, that's one of the things that echoes through It as well, is that you don't necessarily know what shape it's gonna take. It's it's unreliable. It's like a disease. Mm -hmm. It can transfer from one person to another and creep out in strange places. That's why It Follows is so fucking terrifying. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: It Follows made me, like, suspicious of random strangers walking down (laughs) the street
0: for a month afterwards. (laughs) I was just like,
3: ah, they're walking right toward me.
0: That's, You know, it's interesting that all three of you are talking about going back to these children, going back to these child experiences of, of kids in the movies with with Gate and Salem's Lot and It, and it just, you know, I haven't thought about that as a theme, but all three of you keep on going back to children and movies. Why do you think it is that we get so connected to the kids
2: in these scary movies? Well, that's when we were most vulnerable, for starters. That's mm-hmm. the easy answer. Yeah. But, but the more complicated answer is that children are connected in a more visceral way to a metaphysical world imagined or real depending on your beliefs yeah but that makes everything so much more real whether it's because there's a thin veil or just because of the way that children perceive reality and that puts it in such a special place for things crawling out from every single shadow
0: this is super cynical but from a psychodynamic developmental perspective in psychotherapy we look at childhood as a tension between comfort and terror.
2: Yeah, that
0: that checks out. If mom doesn't feed you, you're gonna die. And some part of you knows that even before you have language for it. And so when people get sick, from, from a mental health standpoint, we go back in time, we lose the adult functions, and we look at psychosis from certain schools of thought as going back to, if mom doesn't feed me, I'm going to die. Mm. And a lot of psychotic disorders can be understood with that idea of vulnerability that you're talking about, Kat. It's sort of the fallacy of security when you're a kid, too.
1: You feel like your parents are there to take care of you, or somebody's going to look out for you. And then as you get a little older, you realize, no, nah, that's not really the case all the time. And you are a lot of times on your own or, like, wait, no, people can kill kids? Like, so it's, it's... When you see this stuff for the first time as a kid, it's like, I'd never seen a slasher movie before and knew that you could be stalked and murdered and all these things, and so it resonates on a level that as an adult, like, yeah, I've seen this before. I've, I've seen this story before, but then it was, it was so new and just so sort of eye-opening that, wow, the world is way more terrible than I thought.
3: Yeah, and, and from the other side of things, like, I have my own kids now, and now, like, I find myself much more worried in scenes where where there's some sort of uh, menace towards children, like because I'm so conditioned to like think about how my children are going to die any moment when I'm when I'm not there, because not only are they defenseless, they're just so stupid. Um, <laughs> they they will just wander into things. Uh, and I, I recently watched uh, a Quiet Place, and um, <laughs> the scene where the basement is flooding and the baby is in the thing and. Floating through the water, and the thing is there, and I was like, "Why? What? Just stop! <laughs> resolve! Resolve the scene! I just need to end." Because I'm, I'm just flipping out on my couch. I'm like, "There's a baby in danger, and it's crying, and it's all going to go wrong." Um, but yeah, I like I I know that there was some point a few years back where I would have watched that
2: and not had nearly as like visceral a reaction to that. Yeah, I also find that children respond uh, well. So existential horror, mm-hmm. um, dream-like horror, mm-hmm. uh, where things, they start communicating with you on a subconscious level that you yourself can't necessarily put together the pieces. The thing mm-hmm. that David Lynch so aptly deconstructs okay. in his work that makes the vast majority of things he's done horror, at least for parts of it. Yeah. I would definitely like put many of his works as being like the most scared I've been in any mm-hmm. given thing. So... In that dreamlike way, kids are also very attached to that. The, you know, how many times as a child did you come to your parents' room, like terrified, sobbing, and screaming from a nightmare, and then you know, like you managed to make your your way from your bed to that room with nothing but this gulf of terror in between, not even remembering necessarily what happened. The sublime, the gothic, the the concepts that are larger than than human understanding, the things that Lovecraft. Tapped into by describing it in such vague but poetic ways, and like that is where, for me at least, the yeah. greatest horror lives. Yeah, yeah. I think Neil Gaiman is another person who has oh my gosh, a yes. really
3: strong connection to like having things that on the surface they're mostly weird, uh, but like on some sort of deeper level, like I uh, read the ocean at the end of the lane. Yes. And like it is, for the most part, kind of a scary kids' book, like. You know, you could definitely read that like in like middle school, but there's a a point where like this thing is more or less controlling his dad, and like the dad is drowning, you
2: know, his own his own kid in this story, and it's like,
3: why? (laughs) So (laughs) terrible.
2: Like I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. Because because the the helplessness of being a child is is so well embodied in that.
3: Everything that's supposed to make him feel secure in that story is turned against him by this force.
2: Yeah, it's and so well it's established as like like having a relatively safe status quo, and then it all gets systematically taken away. It's so good. Yeah, it's
3: it's a quick read. Like it's a it's based it's almost a novella, but like yeah, definitely put that on your list if
0: you want something that's that's scary, in, in unusual ways. So y'all have been talking about a variety of, of horror media. You've talked about movies. You've talked about short stories and books. What do you think makes this particular emotion so adaptable to so many different things? Cap, you mentioned the audio drama being specifically tuned to horror. Can you talk a little bit more about at least audio?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the theater of the mind is one of the most dynamic mediums that we have to operate in. If you have a movie, you're presented with a very a finite space. And if you're paying enough attention, it can draw you in in, in a very powerful way. Uh, if you're reading a book, you get to fill in the blanks and potentially make the most horrifying things. But you also are it's 100% reliant on your reading comprehension, the amount of, that you're investing in transforming those words and decoding those and making them into thoughts. But with an audio drama, you have the capacity to give um, a, a lot of helping hands, to nurture people to a place, and then the mind fills in the rest of the blanks in a really powerful way because um, if it's a well-crafted audio drama, we're going to set you up to fill in those blanks in the most viscerally horrifying way possible. And it allows you to almost be within the minds or headspaces of the individuals because they're just voices talking. So you can be this character walking down a corridor. Uh, You can be with their narrative. And when something, like, comes out at you, it places you in there. In a similar way to where, say, a video game, like, say, Silent Hill, what an incredible experience playing the first Silent Hill. Like, that level of interactive horror was was phenomenal because you, are, you put yourself into that game as an avatar and anything that happens to Harry is in fact happening to you. You'll be on the, holding the controller will be like ugh. You will, you will physically move because that thing has reached out to get you. But in the audio drama, you are the avatar in a way. It all comes into you and into your dream space. You've made this little theater for yourself and you're allowing someone else to fill it up with all the terrible things.
1: It's funny, when I did uh, the Clive Barker book, The Great and Secret Show, as a comic, Clive is is not quite as as sort of vague as Lovecraft, but he doesn't really describe things in detail because he wants you to form the, your own picture of what these monsters and horrors look like. And so there were these different creatures throughout the book. Some were these nightmarish things pulled from people's heads. Some were like it was a combination of, like, shit and semen that formed these, like, weird snake-like creatures and stuff. And, and so in all of them, I would ask Clive, like, well, how do, you, how do you see this visually? And he goes, this is yours. Like You make it. This is my best Clive, by the way. Um, it's a very good client. Yeah. Very good, very good. Whatever, however you see it, then that's your version of this. And so I felt a lot of pressure because I knew there was like 20 years worth of fans who have an image in their head and suddenly we're putting on paper this thing that maybe doesn't at all jive with what they've seen and I didn't want to let any of the fans down, mm-hmm. which is I think one way comics is at a disadvantage in portraying horror over audio drama or movies or even books because you can you can either describe things in a book to a point where you form the image yourself audio drama like you said and then film you've got all these different cues that allow you to sort of horrify the viewer Music. Um, you can do the jump scares. You can do all these different things. Comics, you don't really have any of that. You have... Basically, all you can do is sort of build dread to where you don't really want to turn the page because you think something bad's going to happen, but it's it's not the same as a cat jumping out at you or, like, yeah. the monster coming out of the dark or, you know, the Halloween, you see his mask appear in the shadows. And so horror and comics is almost more dread and shock than it is true horror. That's why when there's a good horrific locking key or sometimes Hellboy does this really well, where you can do horror in ways that a lot of horror comics I don't think are as effective at portraying horror as much as they are just showing sort of gratuitous shock, because that's (laughs) the thing you can do in print really easily, but pure horror is hard to do in print.
3: Yeah, I, I think getting horror to translate into comics has so much to do with, like, your investment in the character and you not wanting things to happen to that character in a way that, like... Movies—they can scare you just by sound cues. I I think, especially with audio dramas, I think there are a lot of like good audio dramas that sort of like you can condition people to some extent with sound. You can introduce sounds and then take them away and then bring them back at some point to to scare people. I think um, what's been an interesting one for me is uh, listen to the Magnus Archives. It started out as just a guy reading scary stories, and like it is. They're genuinely pretty, like, existentially scary stories, but uh, they've also introduced more of, like, bringing those things sort of out of the pages of the story into the the real world of the podcast in a way that's been interesting, because they introduce these things to you and you learn about them in a way that's
0: semi-non-threatening, but then they're real, and uh, suddenly you're like, oh, that's uh, serious. Yeah, and actually Jeremy and I were at uh, a book signing for Alice Isn't Dead, uh, the novelization of the podcast, and one of the things they were talking about with between the media is when you read a book, you have to pay attention. When you listen to a podcast, you're usually doing something else, but you're paying attention to, and so having different cues associated, that when you're listening to a podcast, if you listen to that same one again, you're suddenly kind of... I'm driving this particular space that I was driving, or the person was talking about like breaking leaves. Mm -hmm. And I think there is something very different than watching a movie at home versus in the theater because at home I'm checking Facebook in between the scary parts. And I think there is something to the medium of comics where you have to be reading it. There's maybe background noise, but like you're connecting to lock and key in a way that when it's a series on TV, I'm not going to connect to it in quite the same way. I'm going to get something out of it, but it's not going to get my attention the way that the comic does, the way that the the novel would.
1: The bummer thing with comics is you can't really control how people read it, Mm -hmm. you know, and so if you have this big reveal on the next page, they might have just flipped through it when they're at the shop and go, oh Mm -hmm. shit, a splattered hat, you know, and it sort of lessens Mm -hmm. the impact that you intend, but... I guess once you've turned it out in the world, you can't really control how people consume it, but it is, it is another way that you sort of lose a bit of the impact that you can get from these other mediums.
2: There are some clever ways to manipulate it, though. Dave Sims is pretty good at that, controlling the ways that readers can read something, which made for some pretty chilling moments in service.: Well, and honestly,, like,
1: as much as um, I think sort of the big, impactful scenes can stand out. One of the best, probably the best horror comic I've read in the last five years is The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Like, oh, it's, it's so good. well done. It's so good. It's so just good. amazing, and it's just, you're filled with dread and horror, and it, it, a lot of that is just through the text. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and I mean, Hack's artwork is sort of unsettling, and the coloring is, it all sets this great mood, but it is, it hits you in a way that doesn't rely on, a big impactful image as much as just this overall horrific tale being told in
3: front of you. I would, for for almost opposite reasons, uh, say that Witches is one of the, like, oh, yeah. few yeah. comics that's legitimately scared me. Like, because, almost for the opposite reason, because, like, there's so many places in that where you're like, what's going on? Is that, what is that thing? What is happening? This is bad. Like, it's just this feeling of dread. Something is going to get you. You don't really know what it is. Everything is shattered and in the dark, and... Because of Jock's artwork, kind of hard to make out. Like, it's, it's non-distinct. And the
1: coloring has got some splatters. And yeah. I, I read the Bad Egg, the collection of the uh, sort of the image catalog short stories that they did on the plane. And it was like, Jesus, this is unsettling. Yeah. And again, because I think there was there were a couple of 11-year-old kids involved and, like, potential murder of the kids. And it is that is a really good, effective horror comic. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
0: So you're talking about unsettling, you're talking about uncomfortable feelings, and yet whenever we do horror panels like this, um, one thing that we have to think about is that you're always asked, why do you like being scared? Why do you like horror stuff? Why don't you just watch happy stuff? Mm -hmm. How do you respond to, you know, why do you like horror? Why do you want to be scared? I mean, life
1: is pretty scary, and I'm like, I'm a parent now too. Everything's fucking terrifying now. Like, just everything could go wrong at all times. And I never would have expected to be completely rewired in the way where I dread everything all the time now. And I don't know, I think I just always like feeling off kilter and and sort of unsettled because feeling settled is kind of boring. And there's nothing to really sort of get you up and down. I don't know. I mean, it's probably a hard thing to define, at least for me. But I, I think I like the feeling of being shocked and scared and unsettled more than I just like the feeling of feeling it things are okay. Like, okay is never
0: yes. enough. And what you're talking about from a psychological standpoint is the idea of putting a behavior on cue. If I'm scared all the time, but I know I'm going to be scared right now because I'm watching this, and I know the story is going to end, I can exercise that. I can I can put that on cue, and then I don't have to be scared that it's going to come up out of that. I've, I've gotten it out. Yeah. And that's actually a really important psychological
2: term that we use. I feel there's a certain amount of discovery in horror, like self-discovery, because mm-hmm. you're subjecting yourself to something that makes you feel that vulnerability, and you don't necessarily know what's gonna come out the other side in terms of your reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So definitely for me, I, I go to it because because it takes me to a place where, where I'm not necessarily as in control as I normally am. There's, yeah. a, there's a surrender to it. Surrender. I, I think
3: for me, um, what I like about horror is I feel like you know, there are certain conventions and, and certain things in the genre, but to some extent nothing is sacred in horror. Mm. Like there are a lot of stories that when you start reading them, especially somebody who reads a lot of stories or writes a lot of stories. My my wife is continually confounded by the fact that I will say words that a person is saying on the television at the same time that they're saying them, having never seen the movie. <laughs> yeah. I'll just be like, Oh yeah, and he says blah, blah 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 It was all cute. up. But like You know, there's certain things that won't happen in a romantic comedy. There's certain things that won't happen in even, you know, a a serious drama. Um, But, you know, in a horror movie, anything can and sometimes will happen. I think my favorite horror movies are are the type that, like, they end up bringing things to some sort of conclusion, which is, like, uh, where not everything works out or where there's that, like, last twist that you weren't expecting that, that pulls everything together... Um, I was really surprised uh, recently. I watched Happy Death Day. I was all set for that to be a, a very dumb PG-13 horror movie, and in some respects it is. But in some respects it goes, we know what you think this is. It's a dumb PG-13 horror movie. But we're just gonna we're just gonna turn it on its head a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna twist it. And as soon as you think you know what's going on, we're just gonna twist it a little more. And it's fun in that there are fun elements to it. There are different elements to it. You don't know what's gonna happen. I mean, your
0: character your main character dies several times, so there's still like a level of investment there. Jeremy, you mentioned your wife watching movies with you and seeing that. I'm wondering, uh, do your loved ones read or listen to your horror work?
3: Not yet. My, my <laughs> wife generally doesn't enjoy horror stuff, uh, period. She's uh, <laughs> She's high on the anxiety side of things, so she's sort of living that life to begin with she doesn't really need i think additional stimulation as far as that goes but you know i i wouldn't i'd be fine with uh you know my family members reading my stuff but i don't think it's <laughs> happened yet yeah horror wise
1: yeah when i first wrote zombies versus robots my daughter was like uh, three or four months old and it was awful like it was awful. You don't sleep. You're miserable. The kids got you just deprived of every sort of creature comfort in your life. And it's just, you're There's just trying to does. keep this unappreciative thing alive. And so when I wrote Zombies the Robots, it had one human in it, this little infant. I named her after my daughter. And then the baby died at the end. And so my wife read that. I was, I was just working some things out, man. Um, so my wife read that, and she's like, hmm. I don't think I'm gonna read any more of your stuff, cause if you're just like killing off the family in your fiction, like anyway, so no, she doesn't really she doesn't she's not a big comic person anyway, but I think that was she was like, huh. Are you trying to tell us something? Like, no, no, just this is just my subconscious working out some things. <laughs> the kid's great now, but in those first few months,
3: whew <laughs> oh, Yeah, that's 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 the same sort of headspace <laughs> I watched the Babadook in, which is why I think that affected me so much, because it's just sort of like She's sleep deprived. I'm sleep deprived. She's angry at her kid all the time. I'm angry at my kid all the time. It's actually this horrible thing that's going on under the surface. Is it that horrible thing that's
0: going on under the surface? I feel like maybe it is. (laughs) I'm really feeling this character right now. So there's a horror book club that meets in Raleigh uh, once a month and we did a story uh, last night where a parent leaves a kid at a gas station at the end because she just kind of does that. And all the parents were talking in the group about how that was the scariest part for them, not because of how awful it was, but because everyone has wondered can I just leave this kid somewhere? <laughs> like, I mean, can I return it? And and I think that's something that horror does so well, which is speak the taboo. It, mm. It's willing to, to do that. Horror is great and it covers such a breadth, but it does get a lot of criticism for the way that it portrays diversity or or intersectionality. That Get Out was seen as such a a markedly profound, important time piece of a movie because of the way that it treated race. Um, Historically, we know that black characters don't, they're usually like one or two, and, and horror is a mostly white genre, or at least it has that reputation. And there are certain time periods where that's very much the case. Could you speak a little bit about the way that horror, when it does portray intersectionality or diversity well, and how you might want to get that to a better place? I know, Jeremy, your Vampirella is embracing sexuality in a very different way than I think um, that comic has before.
2: Why don't you start us out? Yeah, Jeremy, I would really love to know about your take on Vampirella because I was unaware of it. It looks way better. Yeah, I I know Vampirella Vampirella as just the cheesecake. Elvira. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I had...
3: I had luck in, in some respects that uh, Paul Cornell had been on the book right before me and uh, had taken her out of the traditional Vampirella costume, so I didn't have to do it. <laughs> um, and it was it was nice to like not have that as a limitation already, but um, the Vampirella in this story is in a, a same-sex relationship, and it's in this sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland, and, and, and It was a a fun thing that I was playing with the idea early on that we sort of went really far with. That Part of the setup that Paul puts in there is uh, that uh, Lucifer has been running the earth for some amount of time and has this sort of uh, fake heaven that people are sort of paying to get into, and it turns out it's actually tormenting people on the other side. God has gone missing. And at the end of of his story, Lucifer gets defeated, And he sort of left it open as to what comes next. And what I decided was that they they never actually find God in that story, so God is still missing. There is no heaven because she has destroyed this electronic heaven that people go to. Uh, So what if people just never die? What if no matter what horrible thing happens to you, you don't die? It's sort of a weird horror twist. And at the same time, God, let us... um, playing with this horrible uh, cliche in stories with queer women where they always die. We have a story with two, you know, female leads in a relationship where they literally can't die. So, like, you know, we got to go sort of wild with that and have a big sort of horror story where, like, this is off the table already. And, you know, it's, to me, the idea of dying is nothing compared to the idea of, like, having large chunks of your body removed and not, like, still feeling pain or being, you know, possibly not able to move but still being conscious and not able to do anything about it, uh, that's much scarier than dying. So uh, we sort of got to play with that idea some and we went kind of Mad maxi with stuff. So, you know, no matter how big and how crazy the battles get, uh, people still have to keep living with whatever's happened to them, which is, I think, scarier than just about anything. (laughs) I'm glad I saw horror movies, like like slasher
1: movies, notably, when I was 10. Because at that point, I was a stupid, ignorant kid who didn't know anything. So, like, when I watch them now, you're really seized by just how misogynistic they are. And they're, mm. they're oddly chased while they're sort of overly violent. You know, the couple that has sex is punished and killed because of it. And the white girl is always the last character. And it's like you just... I didn't pay attention to that stuff as much as I just saw this like big thing in a mask and a chainsaw coming after you and so I I think as much as as anything you try to evolve as a person in the things you consume the things you expect from the entertainment you consume and also the things you produce like I just try to make sure now that my character base is properly represented in a way that doesn't feel forced but better reflects the world that I now see around me instead of what you saw when you were 10, which is a very insular, closed-off world. And so I think it's more of just that, just sort of hoping you keep progressing and evolving as a person and paying more attention to sort of these very bad, old, either stereotypes or just overly simplified conventions and not repeating them.
2: There's a lot of great psychological observations about what is manufactured horror as it was prior known, on the ways that that it, it was so puritanical, in spite of the hedonism and, and carnage that the films themselves represent, and how queerness is perpetually punished, and all the various like collective wrongdoings of the genre in that sense. I mean, I, I couldn't even really point anybody to like the, a definitive exploration of it because it's just a, it's a fascinating thing to explore: the cross section of the mindset of the writers who had you know who inevitably created this, and the the system that enforced the kinds of stories that were being told and so on and so forth. But now that we are in a place where things are just better in that sense, there are more opportunities to do wonderful experiments like Get Out that show people something that's sort of familiar but in a completely different sense that tells something that's like a an honest fundamental truth of of human nature, at least in these modern times. Or for example for Queer characters. To, to use an example of, the, of a piece I'm working on right now, the current series of the Call of Cthulhu mystery program, uh, two of the central characters are queer occultists, okay. and many of the facets that brought them into this like 1920s world of the occult is because you know queerness is underground. The occult itself is also underground, so therefore, that aspect of them allows them to have a greater understanding of these dark things, yeah. um, for better and for worse, because it's it's horror. Yeah. Yeah, if
1: there's ever a writer who, who
2: needs some modernizing and updating, it's Lovecraft. Yeah, mm-hmm. hell yeah. yeah. He really desperately does. Yes. And there are there's some who postulate that Lovecraft himself was, I mean, like, you know, he's subject of, of a great many rep- kinds of repression and maybe himself was queer and, and unable to, to really rectify that, which is why all of his monsters are so vaginal. But that's, you know, conjecture.
0: <laughs> well, we have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure I open up to y'all to join our conversation. So the question was there are horror movies that can be seen as symbols or analogies or metaphors and horror movies that can be seen as monsters. And do the panelists have a preference for the literal interpretation or the symbolic interpretation? I I prefer when
3: it can be both. Like It Follows, when you can look at it and just enjoy it as a a scary movie, uh, where a thing follows. That's what it does, it follows. Uh, It's the most explicit horror movie title ever. (laughs) It Follows. What is it doesn't matter, it follows. But uh, you know, there also can be other interpretations. There's other stuff there under the surface that you can pick apart if you want to. I, I like being able to watch a movie and enjoy it, and then go back later and go, "Huh, if well, also this?" I'm a big fan of uh, movies that try weird stuff, even if they don't always work. I really like Jennifer's Body because it's, a, it's just such a weird horror movie. Yeah. And they, I'm also a big fan of like. The cute girl is the monster stories um so that's always good for me but yeah I, I like I like it when it's both.
1: yeah I mean I, I think I'd same you know there's some movies I just want to be scared and see something crazy on screen other times I want to come out of there and really think about things and like it follows is so many different things to so many people like to some it's a it's the idea of a communicable disease or this thing that is inside you that you can't get out until you pass it on to this next person and others. It is just this monster that will never, ever stop, which I think... That movie worked for me in ways that just almost no horror movie has because it's like you just... Mm-hmm. It won't stop. It'll never stop, and there's no way to defeat it. And it's like, Jesus Christ. Like When you really think about it, that's, it's, it's so unsettling, and I think if you see it just on that level, it works just fine. If you sort of see it on a deeper level you can but it does it sort of hits on all these different levels which to me is always the most effective way but you know sometimes you just you just want the big goofy scares too
2: obscurity is the greatest tool in a horror writer's arsenal and the obscurity of is it just a monster or is it something more that the discussion that you're having with yourself and with others about what it actually represents that's that's the fuel that keeps the horror film burning inside you after it's over and that's a success like that's that's a, a beautiful thing to make to help other people experience that unease on a perpetual cycle like that
1: Well, you know a lot more people talked about that movie a long time after they saw it than like halloween like oh remember when the dude in the mask killed people yeah i guess what else <laughs> you know and so like it follows sticks with you in ways that sort of your typical horror movies don't which yeah. makes it that much more effective right. i mean okay. to me
3: uh talking about halloween i think halloween Two is actually scarier to me than Halloween, because it's tapped into all this, like, fear of hospitals and stuff that I have, like, that, that's there, so, like, yeah, scary horror movie stuff is, is good and whatever, but, like, you know, at the point that, like, I'm, I'm much more likely to be at a hospital and be like, something's wrong, and I don't know what it is. <laughs> than I am just in my house.
0: The so hospital like,
1: was crazy understaffed. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> really, really
0: <laughs> understaffed. And none of the lights work. Yeah. <laughs> so I wish we had more time because I'm loving this conversation, but we are out of time. So first off, where else can people find you on social media if they want to talk more about scary stuff with you?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter mainly, uh, that terrible, terrible website. at uh, It's jrome58, so J-R-O-M-E-5-8. I'm usually uh, talking about comics or something, and I'm always happy to
2: engaged. Yeah, I'm Chris underscore
1: Ryle on most all social media platforms.
2: You can find me at Cap Blackard, really anywhere. And you can find the Call of Cthulhu Mystery program at CthulhuMystery.com or wherever you get podcasts. So There's also Loser's Club, the Stephen King podcast I mentioned, and Halloweenies, the Michael Myers podcast I mentioned. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention Ghostbusters Resurrection, our Ghostbusters tabletop role-playing audio drama, where I've designed a lot of terrifying creatures for the current season that we're on a
1: big hand for all of you yeah yes, thanks so, thank so much for coming. for coming yes
2: thanks so much for listening to this episode of nerdy show you'll find links to all the media we talked about on this episode's page at nerdyshow.com if you dig what we do, please do consider supporting the Nerdy Show Network at nerdyshow.com slash Patreon. That's the home base for all of our in-house productions, including the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. So if you want to fund that show or see more things like it, well, the only thing to do is to throw your hard-earned money our way. We'll give you all kinds of plentiful rewards in return, but that is how the shows get made. And in fact, among those rewards are a number of bonus features from behind the scenes of the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, as well as early release episodes. Next week, episode four of Call of Cthulhu comes out. And soon after that, I think we'll have a brand new batch of early releases headed to Patreon. Presently, they're still in sound design, so time will tell. But as soon as I have them, you will have them. Now, as for North Carolina Comic Con, they do two shows a year. And if you've been following us here on Nerdy Show, you'll know that we're pretty big fans of what they do. For me, conventions are typically a hell of a lot of work, but damn it if North Carolina Comic-Con can't come soon enough, yeah, it's a lot of work on my part, but I also have a really, really damn good time, and if you're just attending, well then you get all the good time. So I highly recommend coming out to North Carolina Comic-Con Oak City, which takes place in Raleigh, North Carolina. That's happening March 15th through 17th in 2019. And they've already announced some of the cool stuff that's happening, including an appearance by Greg Sipes, a.k.a. Beast Boy, a.k.a. Michelangelo, from the initial Nickelodeon Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle show. A cool guy who I've never had the pleasure of meeting and cannot wait to uh, hang out with him. Also, from a horror bent, well, they're bringing over Jim Wynorski, who's a screenwriter, director, and producer who's been making B-movies forever, including Chopping Mall and The Return of Swamp Thing, two films which I cannot confirm will appear but very well might in the tie-in Alamo Drafthouse film screenings that will be occurring during this event. What's more, and this is bonkers, Deadly Prey Gallery is joining forces with North Carolina Comic-Con and Alamo Drafthouse to create a space in the convention dedicated to West African poster and sign art from the industry known as the Ghanaian Mobile Cinema. I'm just going to read the copyright here because it's an incredible story. This business started in the late 1980s when artistic, industrious groups of people formed video clubs in Ghana. With a television, VCR, VHS tapes, and a portable generator, they'd travel throughout Ghana setting up makeshift screening areas in villages without electricity. The posters that they created, the original posters, were the way the audience knew what film would be coming next. And these posters are batshit crazy. As I understand it, They're created from information about the film, sort of secondhand, creating these sensational images that that simply say, Come see this film! It will dazzle you! Look at these muscles and explosions! It's like the best, worst VHS box art you've ever seen, but, like, supercharged. It is incredible stuff. So they're gonna have hundreds of original posters at this event. If you want to go to a kick-ass cinema art event, the likes of which you've never seen before, That's at North Carolina Comic-Con Oak City in Raleigh in March. They've never done anything like this before. You never know what's going to happen. So I'm super excited. Yes, I'm going to be there, most likely with the Lightning Dogs crew, repping our animated series that's like a slice of uh, Ninja Turtles mashed up with Mad Max. So yeah, I love North Carolina Comic-Con, and maybe there'll be some other Nerdy Show episodes consisting of uh, panels from that event. Maybe there'll be Patreon perks. Who knows? Keep an eye out. This is just one of several that we did. Uh, but otherwise, we're pretty overdue for a regular episode of Nerdy Show, which I anticipate will appear in two weeks' time. But first, Call of Cthulhu. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And don't forget to do all your holiday shopping through Nerdy Show's links at nerdyshow.com Amazon. Everything you buy on Amazon through our links will not cost you any money, but will give back to us. If you're going to spend money already, it's an easy way to contribute to us. And hey, if you want us to sh- give a shout-out to you on the show for all the cool Christmas stuff you bought, Hit us up, message us on Facebook, Twitter, email us at info at nerdyshow.com, whatever you want to do. We'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. We always like to hear from you. We always like to know what you think. And every rating and review pushes our little by fans for fans podcast network one step closer to greatness. So thanks so much again, and we'll see you next time. (laughs)